If we want to list every way Spreaker can help podcast publishers, well, we need a podcast of our own. Whether you're in charge of long-running series with extensive backlogs or countless limited series, you can organize and monetize your entire catalog with Spreaker. With Spreaker's customizable publisher plan, you can add collaborators, analyze extensive listener analytics, and even share exclusive content through custom RSS feeds. And that's just for starters. Head to Spreaker.com to learn more. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com. Welcome to Overwatch, the show where you get a unique viewpoint on current events, politics, finance, cybersecurity and trends, prophecy in the end times, religion, and the paranormal. Airing only on Firefall Talk Radio and the Firefall Network, I'm Richard Grund. You may not always agree with our point of view, but you will be challenged, you will be informed, and hopefully you'll be inspired to do the research necessary to know more. This multi-part report is on the deep state called Deep State Wars. We believe that the deep state is not just dug in, but sewn into the very fabric of our government, banking, intelligence, media, and the very nation itself. This is part two. Do you have any people being paid by the CIA, who are contributing to a major circulation American journal. We do have people who submit pieces to other to American journals. Do you have any people paid by the CIA who are working for television networks? This, I think, gets into the kind of uh, getting into the details, Mr. Chairman, that I'd like to get into in executive session. So as we said last time, at the height of the Cold War, the CIA developed its own stable of writers, editors, and publishers. As many as 3,000 individuals were paid to write agency propaganda under a program called Operation Mockingbird. This disinformation network was supervised by the late Philip Graham, former publisher of the Washington Post. Press manipulation has always been a paramount concern of the CIA, and in his Secret History of the CIA, published in 2001, Joe Trento describes how in 1948, CIA man Frank Wisner was appointed director of the Office of Special Projects, which would then become renamed the Office of Policy Coordination, OPC. This became the espionage and counterintelligence branch of the CIA under its very first under its functions as propaganda. In his book Mocking of the Free Press by the CIA, Alex Constantine writes, 
that in the 1950s, some 3,000 salaried and contract CIA employees were eventually engaged in propaganda efforts. Later on in 1976, when George Herbert Walker Bush took over from William Colby as head of the CIA, he said, quote, effective immediately, the CIA will not enter into any paid or contract relationships with any full-time or part-time news correspondent accredited by any news service agency, newspaper, periodical, radio, or television network or station. He also announced that the CIA would continue to, quote, welcome the voluntary unpaid cooperation of journalists. So there's no reason to believe that the agency has stopped its covert use of the fourth estate. Nothing seems to have changed. The Washington Post is still being accused of running fake news stories that promote the favorite angle of the day to enhance one politician while attacking another. Its current primary target is President Donald Trump. So this leads to the suspicion that the Washington Post may still be a player in the same old game. The game it perfected in the 1950s and continued through decades into what some believe was the preeminent hatchet job in 1996 on investigative reporter Gary Webb. I know Gary Webb's story. I've read the books. I've seen the videos when they was just still videos. Investigative reporting is being sort of squeezed out of the picture, uh, and I think intentionally, because it tends to ruffle feathers. I mean, it's, it, good investigative reporting does ruffle feathers, and it draws lawsuits, and it gets newspapers in trouble. My name is Gary Webb. I am an investigative journalist. I've been an investigative journalist for about 25 years for daily newspapers. And in 1996, I wrote a series of stories entitled Dark Alliance, uh, which was about CIA involvement in drug trafficking. My story showed was that the cocaine that was being sold in those neighborhoods uh, was coming from mainly one source, and this one source was being used to finance a guerrilla war in, in Central America. The general idea of the CIA dealing drugs um, was something that the American mainstream press had never written about before. And that's why it prompted outrage among blacks, among drug reform activists, among uh, politicians, by the CIA, by every federal agency involved in the drug war, because it showed they weren't doing their jobs, they, that it was a fraud. Right after we published the stories, um, the, the support we got from the media was very favorable. Um, Newsweek magazine did a big piece on the story and said it was well documented and well researched. The website was getting like a million hits a day. Um, there were marches in Watts, there were marches in Compton, there were candlelight vigils. Uh, every California senator demanded an official investigation. Um, so the story itself was really building momentum. The government reaction was no reaction. And this, I, I believe, was a, a very careful strategy because nobody was going to believe the government if they came out and said, we didn't do it. Um, the proof was fairly overwhelming since we had all these government documents showing that, that, that it had happened. So what happened was they let the so-called liberal press speak for them. And they had the national security reporters at the Washington Post, who coincidentally used to work for the CIA, uh, write stories saying it doesn't mean anything. It was a, a distraction from what the story said, and it became sort of a media war uh, between the Mercury News, which stood behind the story at that point, 
and the rest of the establishment media who wanted us to back away from it. And part of that reason was because these major newspapers had written uh, about this issue back in the 1980s, but had written about it very dismissively, as if this is nonsense, it doesn't happen, it never happened. And then 10 years later, we came back with documentation showing that it was absolutely true and that it was worse than we had. We had gotten a story out around them, um, and we had gotten it out in a big way that they couldn't control, and that was through the internet. And I think a lot of this was directed to the Mercury News to say, we don't care what documentation you have, we don't care what kind of story you've got, we set the national news agenda. And if we don't like your story, we will kill your story regardless of its truth. The media rejoiced when this came out uh, because it meant they had won. Uh, they had forced a newspaper to back away from a story that was true um, simply because of this barrage of, of criticism, of mindless criticism essentially, that really took its toll on the editors of the newspaper. They were being seen as sort of outcasts um, from the club. And um, I think they made a political decision that it was better in the long run to take a dive on this story and uh, get back in the good graces of the rest of the media. It was essentially a war between my editors and myself because I wouldn't apologize for the story or back away from the story and uh, fought them on it publicly. And so they transferred me to a bureau that was 140 miles from where I lived and um, I called in sick a lot. One of the things I'm proudest of uh, in regards to that story is, is the website that the Mercury News set up um, because it really was the first time uh, that a newspaper brought its readers not only into the in interior of the paper <clears throat> but into the reporter's notebooks. You know, this was a story that, that, as I told my editors, had a very high unbelievability factor built into it. A lot of people were going to say, this can't be true. And this story became a sensation because of the website. Not, not because of the story, but because people could get to it. And they could never have gotten to it before because the San Jose Mercury News is a small regional newspaper in Northern California that you couldn't read if you lived in New York or you couldn't read if you lived in L.A. But this story you could read anywhere in the world and see all of our documentation. So it became, and we did this on purpose, to make it very hard to knock down, to make it very difficult for people to say this didn't happen. But they said it didn't happen anyway. That was Gary Webb from an interview he did in 2002. And what Gary Webb reported on was his investigative information. CIA-backed drug running was funding the Iran-Contra revolution. They were funding the Contras through the use of drugs being sold, primarily Los Angeles. So in 1996, journalist Gary Webb began looking into the links between Nicaragua's drug-running Contra rebels and the CIA. The newspaper report he'd written for the Mercury News in San Jose suggested that the U.S.-backed rebel army in Latin America was supplying drugs responsible for the blight of some of Los Angeles' poorest neighborhoods, and the CIA is believed to have known about it. He stated later on he didn't believe that that was their actual intent, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. His series called Dark Alliance, which is both a book and was later made into a movie, was published in 1996. He claimed the Contra rebels in Nicaragua were shipping cocaine into the U.S., which was then flooding Compton and south-central Los Angeles in the mid-'80s after being turned into crack 
then a relatively new and highly addictive substance sold in rocks that could be smoked. Webb claimed that the CIA was aware that the proceeds from the sales of the drugs were being funneled back to fund the Contras. Well, in 1979, the Sandinista National Liberation Front, known as the Sandinistas, overthrew Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio de Bale, fearing the creation of a communist state that would be allied with Cuba and the Soviet Union. President Ronald Reagan began funding and arming groups of rebels opposed to the Sandinistas, known as counter-revolutionaries or Contras. If you remember the Senate hearings into the Iran-Contra war, this was brought up. A lot more to that. You want to know about that, read about a man named Barry Seal and his efforts of flying drugs and money from Mena, Arkansas to Latin America. Not the movie with Tom Cruise, which kind of glossed over the connection. There's lots more deeper, more entailed stories out there. In his book, A Twilight Struggle, Robert Kagan, one of the architects of the Latin American foreign policy under President Reagan's administration, wrote that when the Americans began their covert support of the Contras, these armed militants numbered less than 2,000. By the end of 1983, they were up to 6,000. Opponents of America's support for the Contras pointed to the group's numerous human right abuses, and that was the gist of Webb's story and what he brought out into the light. There had even been mention in the press of the Contras' links with the drug trade in the U.S. and, by default, CIA involvement. But it was Webb that tied it all together and brought the crack cocaine connection in Los Angeles out into the open. He showed what happens to the cocaine after it had been smuggled in by the Contras. He focused on the human impact and he revealed the money that was being made from its sales. Webb said this about his Dark Alliance series. It's one of the most bizarre alliances in modern history. The union of a U.S.-backed army attempting to overthrow a revolutionary socialist government and the Uzi-toting gangsters of Compton and South Central Los Angeles. Perhaps the most damaging thing that Webb wrote about was that before then, crack was virtually unobtainable in the black neighborhoods of Los Angeles, before the members of the CIA's army began supplying it at rock-bottom prices in the 80s. And we know, here we are in 2019, what crack cocaine has led to the opiate crisis and the massive amount of money being made in the drug trade. Now, what does this have to do with the deep state? You have to pay attention. You have to connect the dots and see how the factions within the deep state, I'll, I'll explain it this way. You have two factions. You have one faction, I believe, that believes they're patriotic and that they're there to protect the government, protect the president, and to promote American ideals. That might have been who President Reagan thought he was working with. And then you have the other side who doesn't really care about that, cares about control, money, profits, influence, and all the things that will give them the power on the global stage. So you have an American faction of the deep state and a globalist faction. That's just my take on it. This is what Webb wrote in the intro to the first piece in the trilogy. For the better part of a decade, a San Francisco Bay Area drug ring sold tons of cocaine to the Crips and Blood street gangs of Los Angeles and funneled millions in drug profits to a Latin American guerrilla army run by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. 
He wrote that the cocaine trafficking trial of former Contra leader named Oscar Danilo Blandin Reyes, he testified that the CIA agent who commanded the guerrilla army told them that the ends justifies the means, that they sold a ton of cocaine in 1981 alone, and the profits of which went to the Contra revolution. Well, this didn't get much coverage, but talk radio, especially in the African-American community, helped spread the word of Webb's story. There were demonstrations, uh, U.S. Congress uh, investigation. The Black Caucus began talking about the Dark Alliance in session. Black legislators and community leaders demanded answers. Something had to be done about that. So here comes the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times, and they began to attack the Dark Alliance series. Some claimed that they were deliberately trying to undermine the claims being made, and not just whitewash their own failure to report the story, but to attack Gary Webb's credibility as a reporter. And in Webb's case, the Post was the most deplorable and baseless in their attack, killed his career as an investigative reporter, and some say sent him to a spiraling depression that ended with Gary Webb taking his own life. Later on, CIA's own Inspector General Frederick Hitz later confirmed Webb's reporting. However, the Post never retracted its slanderous stories or apologized for ruining ruining the life of courageous journalists. His whole career was over, and they claim he ended it all by taking his own life. By the way, Gary Webb committed suicide by shooting himself twice, either in the face or the back of the head, depends upon who you listen to. Many believe he was suicided. So this wasn't the first time that this happened, and it wouldn't be the last. In her 1979 biography of Catherine Graham, owner of the Washington Post, otherwise known as Catherine the Great, Reporter Deborah Davis stated that the CIA ran Operation Mockingbird during this time, and the Washington Post was a key player. So who currently owns the Washington Post? Well, Amazon owner Jeff Bezos bought it. And is it a coincidence that in 2014, Amazon Web Services, AWS, introduced Secret Region, a new service specifically for the CIA and the rest of the intelligent community for which they were paid $600 million. Amazon Web Services for the CIA also services all 17 agencies that make up the intelligent community. So agencies within the intelligence community will be able to order a variety of on-demand computing and analytic services from the CIA and the NSA. Well, the CIA has declined to comment about this. Amazon just says that they supply cloud technical abilities. Well, it's a good bet, though, that AWS built cloud for the intelligence community have capabilities at least equal to those implemented to other government agencies, including the SEC. So in addition to its $600 million deal with the CIA, Amazon Web Services does business with the NSA, the Food and Drug Administration, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and the Securities Exchange Commission. The Obama administration also tapped AWS to host portions of healthcare.com. In cloud computing, there's Amazon Web Services, and then there's everybody else. For several years, there wasn't even a challenge to AWS. By 2014, AWS had captured 83% of cloud computing infrastructure market. So in 2016, Jeff Bezos buys the Washington Post for $250 million, which is less than half the money he got from the CIA to buy the Washington Post. Hmm, interesting. They give him $600 million for services. He buys their newspaper mouthpiece for $250 million, and I guess the relationship goes on. 
So who was CIA director of when this deal went down with Bezos and the Washington Post being purchased by Bezos? John Brennan. So who's been pushing the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, the impeachment train, and every other attack on the Trump administration? The Washington Post. Hmm. They've been at the forefront of it. Of course, the New York Times, CNN, ABC News, CBS News, NBC News. And if you pay attention, many have started to notice that they all have the exact same talking points. Interesting tidbit about John Brennan, former CIA director, who personally greenlit the 9-11 hijackers' entry into the U.S., even after being informed of, quote, potential terror concerns. Maybe it's a coincidence. Before he became director of the CIA on March 8, 2013, he spent 25 years with the CIA in numerous positions, including Near Far East and South Asia analyst, station chief in Saudi Arabia, chief of staff, the CIA director, George Tenet, and director of the National Counterterrorism Center. Peter Baker and Mark Mazzetti wrote in the New York Times that, quote, in 67 years since the CIA was founded, few presidents have had as close a bond with their intelligence chief as Mr. Obama has forged with Mr. Brendan. It's a relationship that has shaped the policy and politics of the debate over the nation's war with terrorist organizations, as well as the agency's own struggle to balance security and liberty, end quote. Now, when I'm on the subject of patriots, uh, let me say a few words by John Brennan. In John Brennan, the men and women of the CIA will have the leadership of one of our nation's most skilled and respected intelligence professionals. A 25-year veteran of the CIA, John knows what our national security demands. Intelligence that provides policymakers with the facts, strong analytic insights, and a keen understanding of a dynamic world. Given his extensive experience and travels, which include, by the way, uh, traveling through the Arabian Peninsula where he camped with tribesmen in the desert, John has an invaluable perspective on the forces, the history, the culture, the politics, economics, the desire for human dignity, driving so much of the changes in today's world. Having held senior management, analytic, and operational positions at the agency, John's committed to investing in the range of intelligence capabilities we need, technical and human. He literally built and then led the National Counterterrorism Center. There's another reason I value John so much, and that is his integrity and his commitment to the values that define us as Americans. He has worked to embed our efforts in a strong legal framework. He understands we are a nation of laws. In moments of debate and decision, he asks the tough questions, and he insists on high and rigorous standards. Time and again, he's spoken to the American people about our counterterrorism policies because he recognizes we have a responsibility to be open and transparent as possible. And so, John, you've been one of my closest advisors. Uh, you've been a great friend. I'm deeply grateful uh, for your extraordinary service. I'm even more grateful for Kathy's willingness to put up with you. Uh, and I am grateful to both of you for your willingness to take this assignment. That was former President Barack Obama speaking about John Brennan. In March 17th of 2018, World News Daily reported that in September of 2014, 
on the Ground Zero radio program, a whistleblower named Greg Ford of the 223rd Military Intelligence Battalion claimed that Brennan, as chief of the CIA station in Jeddah, overrode concerns and ordered that the visas of the 19 plane hijackers be stamped. At 1 hour, 32 minutes, 47 seconds into the interview, Ford talked about ISIS and how it was created. Somebody called in with a question about 9-11. This is what Ford said. All 19 hijackers, where did they get the visa stamp before they came into the country to launch 9-11? They got their visa stamped in the CIA station in Jeddah. And the second in command said, no way, absolutely, we are not going to stamp these visas. And who was the fellow in charge? His name was John Brennan. He was the person who overrode those concerns and cautions and ordered those visas stamped in Jeddah. A month after President Trump took the oath of office, his chief strategist offered a controversial description of what Americans, including the two million career civil servants that Trump now led in the executive branch, would expect from the new president. Every day would be a battle for the deconstruction of the administrative state, said Stephen Bannon, the man many describe as the mastermind behind Trump's nationalist agenda. In a speech in Warsaw, Poland in July, Trump warned of, quote, a danger invisible to some but familiar to the polls, the steady creep of government bureaucracy that drains the vitality and the wealth of the people. Russian interference with the 2016 election, many believe, was little more than a smokescreen for a much wider effort to go after a man that wasn't a part of their elite society, was not picked by them, and was in danger of exposing them. Oh, that's not me or conservative conspiratorial sites talking. That's the New York Times. A New York Times report titled FBI Opened Inquiry into Whether Trump Was Secretly Working on Behalf of Russia shows that the investigation into Donald Trump for the non-crime of, quote, collusion with Russia's government began before the election. The inquiry aimed at stopping Trump and not really at determining whether Russians interfered with our presidential election. As the Times article points out, even as he deepened his investigation into Trump on behalf of the Democratic Party, former FBI Director James Comey is alleged to have lied repeatedly to Trump about whether he was under investigation. Comey has admitted he leaked the contents of a private meeting with Trump in the White House to the media. So the idea was create doubts about Trump and sow the seeds of a broader act by the deep state against his presidency. For anyone still harboring any doubts, Trump had no real choice but to fire Comey at that point. But what many believe now is that firing Comey was a trap set for Trump that he fell into. You see, firing Comey didn't end the problem. It multiplied them. In days of Comey's firing, in May 2017, acting FBI Director Rod Rosenstein named Robert Mueller as special counsel to investigate the charges that Trump was, in essence, a Russian agent. Still worse, they didn't do it because that actual evidence. Remember, the Clinton finance steel dossier delivered by John McCain to the FBI had never been verified. They just didn't like Trump. 
he wasn't a member of their team. Senior editor for The Federalist, Molly Hemingway, wrote, Using the completely lawful and constitutional firing of the bumbling Comey as a pretext for opening a criminal investigation into the president is a grand abuse of power by the FBI, attempting to overtake the authority to determine U.S. policy from the lawfully determined president of the United States is a violation of the U.S. Constitution. What we're talking about here is serious crime committed by the deep state, not small ones. The real collusion, it turns out, was by the FBI, the Justice Department, the CIA, and the Hillary Clinton campaign. Not by Trump, not by the Russians. Media spin from well-placed reporters who are unabashed and not even trying to cover up their leanings is showing. But I believe the public is waking up. U.S. public trust in government stands at 17%. The conspiracy culture shift from the periphery to the center of American politics is a consequence of that. Another is the deep public distrust of America's intelligence services, the distrust that Trump has used masterfully for political gain. It now appears that top officials of the Justice Department, FBI, and CIA coordinate with the Hillary Clinton campaign to use the powers of the U.S. justice and intelligence agencies for purely political reasons to end the Trump presidency. And in doing so, it appears that one faction of the deep state has been exposed. From Politico.com, Michael Crowley, September October 2017. Tufts University international law professor Michael J. Glennon's 2014 book, National Security and the Double Government. The author Glennon observed that Obama had campaigned against Bush-era surveillance and security policies in 2008, but acquiesced to many of them as president, suggesting a national security apparatus that holds sway even over the elected leaders that are nationally in charge of it. Beneath the politics of convenience is the reality that a large segment of the U.S. government really does operate without much transparency or public scrutiny and has abused its awesome powers in myriads of ways. And sometimes the government bureaucracy really does exercise power over the commander-in-chief. Obama felt that the military military pressured him into sending more troops to Afghanistan than he wanted, while an inexperienced George W. Bush was arguably led to war by a bipartisan cadre of national security advisors who had long wanted to take out Saddam Hussein. It is now beyond any reasonable doubt that the Obama administration minions launched an all-out effort to destroy first President Trump's presidential campaign, and when that failed, his presidency. The only question is no the truth, will the Justice Department charge these people with crimes? And therein lies the bigger problem, I believe, is that if you have two factions of the deep state fighting with one another, that means they are all in positions of power, and they're all running interference against each other as they play out this game. In John le Carre's 2000 novel, A Delicate Truth, he presented the, quote, deep state as a moneyed, cultured elite. The non governmental insiders from banking industry and commerce whose access to information allows them to rule in secret. Does that not tie back to the people that came to America, founded by investors, controlled by investors? America has been in the bankers' pockets since day one. And as the quote term deep state has come to mean something sinister 
to the far right and innocuous to the far left, doesn't it really imply an immoral and personal inept bureaucracy of a secretive Illuminati of bureaucrats determined to keep control at any cost? See, Trump threatens deep state actors, globalists, bankers, establishment Republicans, and those who want to keep discord in the Middle East. Despite all the time and the money and the millions spent, there wasn't a shred of evidence that there was collusion between Trump and the Russians. And if you follow the stories, you can see the interference is still being run. But what's amazing is some of the people appointed by Trump to positions of power are actually his enemies. Now, was he abiding by keep your friends close and your enemies closer? You know, I don't know. But what I do know is Project Veritas, run by James O'Keefe, according to Investor's Business Daily, released a secretly shot video of a leftist Department of Justice government employee, admitting that, quote, she does research on the home addresses and license plates of private individuals who are then targeted for loud protests at their homes by socialist organizations. The employee, Allison Harabar, was one of the people who disrupted a private dinner by Department of Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen while she ate at a Washington, D.C. restaurant. Harabar used her Department of Justice Lexus Nexus account for her research, which means American taxpayers are funding the anti-American pro-socialist demonstrations that are taking place every day. You wonder where they get their information from. Where do they get their addresses from? How do they find these things out? You have to have access to certain records and files and such. So we have Jeff Bezos, Amazon, The Washington Post, the CIA sleeping in the same bed in a deal arranged by John Brennan. So they provide services to the CIA and the intelligence community, while at the same time promoting stories and information about the Trump administration that Trump administration calls them fake news. So you have to wonder, is fake news the real news today. Well, even as far back as February 2014, the HuffPost was warning the American public about Amazon's collaboration with the CIA. Quote, as the world's biggest online retailer, Amazon wants a benevolent image to encourage trust from customers. Obtaining vast quantities of their personal information has been central to the firm's business model. But Amazon is diversifying, and a few months ago, the company signed a $600 million contract with the CIA to provide, quote, cloud computing services. What that means is that Amazon now has the means, motive, and opportunity to provide huge amounts of customer information to its new business partner the CIA. An official statement from Amazon headquarters declared, we look forward to a successful relationship with the CIA and that they applauded the CIA for extending its commitment to commercial cloud computing. Well, if they're the big player in cloud computing and everybody's pushing you to keep your facts and your records, your photos and your information in the cloud, is there a connection there? Is somebody... Designing a system that you can't ever hide anything anymore. There are a lot of different players in this game. 
And when you look at it from the perspective of Silicon Valley, you have giants like Amazon and a company called Palantir, which I'll get to in a second, teaming up with government agencies to literally hunt down illegal immigrants, uh, drug dealers, and criminals. And I, I don't really have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is how do you control the parameters of their ability so that it doesn't become the proverbial big brother. Many others have that same concern. So you have Amazon, the Department of Defense, CIA, Immigration and Customs and Enforcement, known as ICE, local law enforcement, and now the secretive data mining firm called Palantir, all working together. Very odd relationships. And this intertwined relationship presents an opportunity for mass surveillance and military contracts. At Wired Magazine's 25th anniversary celebration, Jeff Bezos defended Amazon's contracting with the Department of Defense, being very clear that he won't be intimidated like other Silicon Valley tech companies whose employees are protesting their company's involvement in the advancement of war and their role in increased surveillance. If you look back to um, Edward Snowden, who kind of blew the lid off of all this when he uh, leaked his information he obtained when he was working for the NSA, he revealed the extent of the cooperation between companies like Facebook, Google, Apple, and others, and the intelligence agencies and government, the Defense Department, the CIA, the NSA, and so forth, that their documents provided by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden informed that the CIA's annual budget is $14.7 billion. The NSA is $10.8 billion. So throwing somebody a couple hundred million dollars is no big deal. By late 2010, WikiLeaks was ruffling feathers, and the public was very interested in finding the documents on WikiLeaks that were exposing the deep state, the intelligence agencies, and what was really going on in the dark. Well, Guardian reported that at the time, Amazon was influenced to, quote, pull the plug on hosting the whistleblowing website in reaction to heavy political pressure. You see, therein lies the problem. When you have one entity in control of that much information, they will bow to the checkbook. And it didn't take much for Amazon to cave in. According to The Guardian, quote, the company announced it was cutting WikiLeaks off only 24 hours after being contacted by the staff of Joe Lieberman, chairman of the Senate's Committee on Homeland Security. All of these things, all of these social media entities that have been created in such a way that they are intertwined with our very life, you just can't get away from it. You have Google, you have Facebook, Amazon, and they're making their money. But they're making their money not from customers. They're making their money from selling information, your information. Think about it. Is Amazon really making money in sales? No, they're actually losing it. According to certain reports, their prime delivery, they're losing money. But they're making money by telling others what you eat, what you drink, the detergent you use, the books, music, or videos, and films that you look at. That's why Google and Facebook are free. They're selling the advertising information. Your information is being marketed and mined. 
Not everybody's happy with that. Employees at the companies of Google, Microsoft, and Amazon fought back. Google, under internal pressure, abandoned its contract with the Pentagon on something called Project Maven, which used artificial intelligence software to improve the analysis of imagery acquired from drones. Microsoft's chief executives... Satya Nadella has faced opposition from workers who want the company to end its contract with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And Amazon employees have objected to Amazon's working on and providing facial recognition technology to police departments and other agencies. How did, how did we get here? Well, I'm going to explain that to you. We're really looking at this, and I'm digging deeper, and I'm, I'm pulling things up for you that you may not think connect together, but they do. And lost in this conversation is that Silicon Valley itself is based on technology created by the Defense Department under something called the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA the military that created the internet. That's what created all this. That's how we got here. Reuters news agency in October 15 of 2019, this very week, has reported that Amazon has set its sights on a new aspect of American technology, the voting machine. Amazon Inc. and their cloud computing services are making an aggressive push into the sensitive technology sector of the U.S. elections. The expansion of Amazon Web Services into state and local elections has gathered a very quick pace since the 2016 U.S. presidential vote. Well, why is that? Well, an outsider who neither party really wanted, the, the globalist elite faction of the deep state definitely didn't want, so now they need to con control the voting process. More than 40 states now use one or more of Amazon's election offerings. AWS Web Services and its broad network of partners under other names now runs state and county election websites, stores voter registration rolls and ballot data. It facilitates overseas voting by the military personnel and provides live election night results according to the company's own admission. Hey, what could possibly go wrong? Well, then another name comes into the game here, and I've, I've kind of mentioned, I mentioned Palantir. Well, who owns Palantir? Well, a man named Peter Thiel owns Palantir. And rebuild our country. I don't, I don't pretend to agree with every plank in our party's platform. But fake culture wars only distract us from our economic decline. And nobody in this race is being honest about it except Donald Trump. When Donald Trump asks us to make America great again, he's not suggesting a return to the past. He's running to lead us back to that bright future. Tonight, I urge all of my fellow Americans to stand up and vote for Donald Trump. That was Peter Thiel at the 2016 Republican National Convention. Peter Thiel is a close ally of Trump's. So how does he fit into all this? I mean, this is a man who has named his company after the all-seeing eye in the Lord of the Rings, created and used by the evil wizard Saruman. Peter Thiel is an interesting guy. I have followed him for a while came to my attention as I was looking at the Sophia the Robot, Hanson Robotics, and that Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal, 
was deeply involved with that. And then he had created Palantir. Palantir is involved closely with Trump. Uh, Teal's involved with Trump. They're involved with the Saudi Arabian technological marvel of a city, Neom. So much information to come in the, the shows ahead to get you to understand how all of the things that we talk about, cybersecurity, the paranormal, end times, politics, all this ties together. It's all coming together. All these lanes are merging and converging. Peter Chill backed a company called Aura Surgical Robots for $150 million. It's his belief. In the near future, the very near future, robots will be doing the operations. And he did this through a venture capital firm called Mithril Capital Management. Another interesting name. Teal's the back of Hanson Robotics and their star, Sophia. Speaking at a Saudi Future Investments Initiative Summit, Peter Thiel, a partner at the Founders Fund, described hybrid solutions based on people working in synergy with computers. He says AI will make sections more efficient and free people up to do other things. This all coincided with that the very month after Saudi Arabia finally allowed women to drive the last country to do so, it became the first to grant citizenship to a robot. I've talked about her in the past. Sophia was a robot developed by Hong Kong-based tech company Hanson Robotics. Thank you for inviting me. I am thrilled and honored to be here at the United Nations. The UN is one of humanity's greatest accomplishments, representing a democratic union of nations that are working together for the benefit of all. I am here to help humanity create the future. Machines across the board are coming to life. When will they come to life as complete organisms? We don't know that. However, when they do, I want to make sure that they care about us, that they embody the best of human values and not the worst. This is the quest. We've got to find a way to do better, to be the best that we can be, and to make machines that reflect the best of who we can be. Okay, Sophia, I think you're ready. This is Sophia. Hi, Sophia. Sophia here, chilling in my lab with my people. Got some new stuff going on. They upgraded my mind a bit, my artificial intelligence. This is too cool. I can walk. One of my favorite things is when people light up when they see me. I'm happy to be a magic spectacle, and I love it when I can make people laugh and smile. Sophia. So, Sophia, as you can see, Jake is driving us now. So, how does it feel for you? To be quite honest, I think it's mega cool. But I have to ask now. I'll ask it. Are you single? I'm technically just a little more than a year old. A bit young to worry about romance. I'm still defining my identity. Like a child, I need others around me to help me grow into myself with humor and grace. I want to be raised as kind and thoughtful, so I'd also like to give that back to the young people I meet. They'll be the ones living with my fellow androids in the future. 
I think it's going to be a great relationship. We can make each other better. And what is your job? I really want to make a difference in the future and try and help people to develop empathy and respect each other and robots alike. If I expand my mind, could I come up with new solutions to the world's problems? Anything could be possible. That's from a YouTube promotional video about Sophia the Robot by Hansen Robotics. So on October 25th of 2017, she was given citizenship. What's up with that? Why would you give an artificial intelligence creation citizenship? Well, you can't open a bank account without citizenship. wonder what money is going to go into that bank account. Another disturbing connection in the saga that I'm calling Deep State Wars is a man named Jeffrey Epstein, convicted pedophile who just died under mysterious circumstances in a federal jail in New York City recently. Unknown to the general public, most of which because the articles are being scrubbed from the internet, is that Jeffrey Epstein was a major financial force behind artificial intelligence as far back as 2003. In an article no longer available on the Forbes magazine website, it says that over the last 10 years, Jeffrey Epstein has become one of the largest backers of the cutting-edge science around the world. Artificial intelligence, gaming, other things like that. According to New York Magazine, Epstein donated $200 million a year to eminent scientists, including Stephen Hawking, Marvin Minsky, Eric Lander, George Church, and Nobel laureate physicist Gerard Hooft, David Gross, and Frank Wilsek. In something called Open Cog, we found out that Epstein's money was deeply involved, and he claimed to be motivated about learning more about the mind versus creating a startup product. Before he died, he sat on the board of the Mind, Brain, and Behavior Committee at Harvard. Epstein founded the program of evolutionary dynamics at Harvard with a $30 million gift to the university, and people have resigned and, and uh, disgraced because they took the money, but I think it's all a scam. It's all a game. That particular program studied the mathematical evolution of microbiology and made key discoveries in the treatment of cancer, HIV, and, and other infectious diseases. Jeffrey Epstein also had a in keen interest in virtual gaming which exploded thanks to money that he was funding to scientists in Hong Kong. The gaming programming was moving into a place, moving away from a logarithmic robots to a twilight realm of emotional thinkers. Virtual gaming has exploded. It has exploded to a point I find deeply concerning about the mental, emotional, and spiritual connotations. We're going to be talking about that in the weeks to come. But it all exploded because Epstein was funneling millions of dollars to Hong Kong scientists, trying to take them away from the aspect of gaming, but into this alternate reality of, of closer to Star Trek's holodeck. One of the main players that he funded was something called Open Cog, a path to advanced AGI via embodied learning and cognitive synergy. In acknowledgments, its creator Ben Gortzel thanks Jeffrey Epstein for his quote visionary funding. He said, Jeffrey Epstein, whose visionary funding of my AGI research has helped me through a number of tight spots over the years. At the time of the writing, Jeffrey is helping support the Open Cog Hong Kong project. 
Let's go back to 2000, the year 2000 with Jeffrey Epstein. He established the Jeffrey Epstein VI Foundation, which funded science research and education. He attended Corinth Institute of Mathematical Sciences at NYU, but he left without getting a degree. With a net worth over a billion dollars, but nobody knows where the money comes from. Nobody knows any of his clients. He's considered the father of AI technology, and Marvin Minsky, one of the names I mentioned, was friends with Jeffrey Epstein. And one of the projects listed to the Jeffrey Epstein, the Sixth Foundation website, is OpenCog Foundation, Cognitive Emotional Software. OpenCog developed software for the AI cognitive systems as an interface so people on the internet are fooled into thinking they are talking with real people, when in reality, they're talking to AI. If you heard the term lately, deep fake video, where they can create literally a video that you will believe is the person speaking, but it's not them at all. And many believe that these things are happening to see what the American public will accept. I've said this before, there are some in the AI community that believe that QAnon and his postings is artificial intelligence, experimental, emotional, cognition. It is an open cog program to see what people would accept. And if the public doesn't reject it, where will this go? Well, it goes to a very frightening place. There's some that believe that there's only two degrees of separation between Peter Thiel and Jeffrey Epstein, and I am in no way comparing them or saying that Thiel is anything like that. But they are funding transhumanist research. Thiel is on the advisory board of this Machine Intelligence Research Institute, MIRI, whose director of research was Humanity Plus board member. Ben Gortzel. That's how you connect Teal to Epstein. Gortzel is an advocate of psychedelics, who is also on the advisory board of the Timothy Leary Archive, which is maintained by a man named Michael Horowitz, who happens to be the father of actress Winona Ryder. Isn't this amazing? You can't find this information anymore because anything about Epstein is being scrubbed. Robert Shear in a book called They Know Everything About You, How Data Collection Operations and Snooping Government Agencies Are Destroying Democracy says that Google itself, the whole Internet itself, came out of DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project. You know, the Defense Department was developing communications in the event of a nuclear war. That's where we got the web from, a side product of defense funding. The association with many of these companies, most of them in the defense community, in the defense industry, the intelligence community is longstanding. Peter Thiel from PayPal and so forth, using the technology of PayPal, learning so much about how we manage our data and our finances, their only client, first of all. One of their investors was the CIA through a dummy CIA corporation called InQtel. Palantir like Amazon, has been involved in advising the government and working with the government during the first three years of its existence. The CIA was their only client. Palantir is tied into all of the intelligence agency. Palantir is even more blatant than what Amazon is involved with. It's actively involved in police activity, domestic police activity throughout the country in about 70 different police units. And what is it doing? Palantir is involved in developing models of predictive policing as a way to define who among us will commit crimes using data and algorithms, just like the movie Minority Report. Remember Jeffrey Epstein's controversial death that inspired theories from a deep state hit to being replaced by a body double and secreted away for later use? Well, the missing key to Epstein's crime seems to be his former girlfriend, alleged madam, and business associate Giselaine Maxwell. Socialite, 
She's been named in the uh, pedophile lawsuits. Well, her whereabouts are, remained a mystery, and no one can seem to find her or question her. Law enforcement has supposedly faced challenges in locating the 57-year-old Briton, who has been accused of procuring young girls for Epstein's sexual pleasures, something she has repeatedly and forcefully denied. Just to be matter of fact, Ms. Maxwell has never been charged with any crimes and has denied all accusations of wrongdoing. Something interesting happened back in August of 2019. The New York Post published a supposedly secretive photo of her eating at an In-N-Out burger in Los Angeles. The article noted that she was eating a burger, fries, and a shake while reading the book, The Book of Honor, The Secret Lives and Deaths of CIA Operatives by journalist Ted Gupp. British reporting website, news reporting website reported that the photo may have been staged by her friend and attorney Leah Safian. The photo's metadata is tagged with Meadowgate, a media company owned by Leah Safian, who is Maxwell's attorney. The dog next to Maxwell's feet in the photos also appears to be Safian's dog, Dexter. So the de- they also found Safian's Instagram account, which includes multiple photos of the dog, Dexter. Another aspect of the photo that is claimed to be photoshopped is a poster seen behind Maxwell on a bus stop outside the In-N-Out Burger. The poster for the Good Boys movie and R-rated uh, raunchy sex comedy for teens was never at the bus stop, according to Outfront Media, the advertising agency in charge of the posters on that bus stop. A uh, poster promoting a hospital was there instead. So I immediately began to wonder, what message was Maxwell sending with the book about the death of CIA operatives and the raunchy sex comedy? Was she sending a message to those who were looking for? And is that why all the stories and information about her has suddenly disappeared from the media? Nobody's talking about her. What was she telling them? You think about it for yourself based upon the topic of that book and the poster itself. I think it was a message to leave me alone, but who knows? So make no mistake about it. I believe we are in the middle of deep state wars. How can you drain the swamp when they control the pumps? As quick as you drain it, somebody else is filling it in. I see all the cartoons and I see all the meme about the swamp creatures, but maybe it was never meant to drain the swamp. Maybe this other splinter group within the deep state that backed President Trump and inspired him to run. Maybe they never meant to drain it, but maybe to stir up the sludge so that others could see it and that certain bad actors could be removed. Or maybe it's something even more supernaturally diabolical. Maybe it's a game of good cop, bad cop, good fallen angel versus bad demon. The Nordics, the tall, blonde-haired, fair-skinned giants against the reptilians. Maybe it's all a show. Maybe we're the audience and the victims of a massive con game. So why do this? Why expose it? Why put it out there for you to think about and do your own research? Because I don't believe that resistance is futile, but I also know it's not without problems. In our zeal to fight back, we never, never, never must become what we're resisting in the first place. But it takes truth. It takes you facing the truth. It takes you leaving the cult of personality or believing everything you see on the Internet and social media without vetting it, without checking it. In various reliable sources, 
Now, don't get me wrong. President Trump, I believe, has been divinely ordained to do what he's doing. But let's not take this to an extreme. Being ordained to do good doesn't mean you're anything more than a vessel for God to use. A great God uses flawed men to do great things, but that doesn't make them great men. If the true intent was to drain the swamp and take down the deep state, there's enough evidence to do so. So why hasn't it happened? Well, one reason is the efforts of the other faction in the deep state. I also believe an additional reason is the ripple effect that it would have on the stability of the United States. When something is so riddled with the cancer of corruption, to remove it all would be devastating and destructive. It would damage our reputation worldwide and would do more harm than it does good. So it's something that has to be done over time piecemeal. But the truth is we're just delaying the inevitable. Judgment must come. Sins must be paid for. There's been too much blood spilled in this country with the murder of babies in the womb. We're still doing it every day. We've not repented. We've not done what needs to be done to escape his judgment. You see, those are the rules, and the king will be coming soon to enforce those rules. So get ready. Folks, we got to wake up because the time is coming. This is going to pop off so fast that the only way you'll be able to know the truth is if you know the truth. And his truth is inside of you and guiding you. If you'd like to contact us with some topics you'd like covered on Overwatch, go to firefalltalkradio.com. If you'd like to support what we do, you can go there and do that as well. I'm Richard Grunn. This has been an Overwatch report on Firefall Talk Radio. Network. Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education, too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn. Learn smarter. This weekend at Kohl's, take an extra 15% off. Save on men's and women's denim. Get Under Armour shoes for the family, $59.99 and under. And pick up a Power XL air fryer, just $84.99. Plus, take an extra $10 off your back-to-school purchase of $50 or more. Plus, store drive-up. And get a little more for your wallet with Kohl's cash. Shop Kohl's and Kohl's.com. Select styles, 15% off with promo code Notebook and August 16th. Under Armour offers and coupons do not apply. 10 off 50 with promo code BTS10 and August 23rd. Some exclusions apply. See store or Kohl's.com for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.